your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible this morning, we're going to be on page 1046. Uh, as always, as we go through the text this morning, if you have questions, uh, you can go to slido.com, type in RevCDA in the prompt, and anonymously ask a question, and we'll take a look at those at the end this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we, um, we want to be people who are aware of your presence. God, we gather in this, this place together. This is one of the, just the rituals that you have created for your people that, that we have done for uh, generations, gathering on the first day of the week, on Sunday, the day that you rose from the dead, to sit under the authority of your word, to remind each other of your goodness through song and through prayer and through conversation, to exercise the spiritual gifts you've given us as a people in the lives of one another. And God, this can become just, just a thing that we do, just a, a rote check the box part of our life rhythm. And in, in some sense, it's good to internalize that rhythm. But also, God, I just pray that this morning would be a day that we recognize you are here, you are present, and you are doing something. You have a word for us. And God, I, I pray as, as some of us are just rejoicing in your goodness this morning, some of us come into this space just deeply hurting. God, I pray that you would minister to our hearts, that you'd remind us of your care for us, you would encourage us in our suffering and struggle, and that you would be glorified ultimately. Help us to hear your voice this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I, uh, I have a poll real quick, show of hands. Uh, who likes cilantro? Okay, most of us. Who hates cilantro? Yeah, yeah, there's a few, right? Okay, so here's the thing about cilantro. You probably know this, but there is like a genetic marker in some of us that makes cilantro taste like soap and not the deliciousness that it actually is. And the weird thing about that is that cilantro in this situation does not change. My cilantro and your cilantro is the same. But the way we experience the cilantro does. And the Apostle Paul, interestingly, kind of says that the gospel works in the same way. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in Christ's triumphal procession and through us spreads the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For to God, we are the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To some, we are the aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. And then he says, who is adequate for these things? And this is this really interesting reality that the gospel, the message about Jesus, and we're going to kind of unpack the gospel a little bit this morning, is consistent when it is applied to human hearts. But different human hearts experience it in different ways. Some people experience the gospel in such a way that it brings them joy and new life. And some experience the gospel in a way that they interpret as death. Paul in this text in 1 Thessalonians is going to continue to reflect on his thankfulness to the Thessalonian church for what God has done for them and in them. And he's going to highlight two groups of people that have had very different responses to the gospel. We're going to see a group of people that have received the gospel, and then we're going to see a group of people who have rejected the gospel. So first off, receiving the gospel. What does that look like? In verse 13, we read, this is why we constantly thank God, because you received the word of God that you heard from us. You welcomed it not as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, which also works effectively in you who believe. 
Paul celebrates that the Thessalonians understood his message to them and the message of his team as the word of God. And this is really important because um, when we read about the scriptures in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about the scriptures, it's almost always talking about the Old Testament. We forget this sometimes because we have a full 66 book Bible, but the first Christians only had the Hebrew Bible for the scriptures. And so when the New Testament often talks about reading and studying the scriptures, the Christians are talking about the Old Testament. And so sometimes because of that reality, there's a question in our day about whether Paul and the other apostles thought that what they were doing as they wrote was, are they really writing scripture? Do they believe that they're writing the scriptures? Or or even deeper than that, should the New Testament be given the same kind of authority as the Old Testament? And this is really an interesting insight from Paul because he believes that his spoken message about who Jesus is and what he has done to save humanity is the word of God. He preaches the word of God to the Thessalonians and they respond to it. We get a glimpse of this from Peter as well. In 2 Peter 3, he says, also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some things hard to understand in them. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So Peter recognizes that there are these parts of Paul's letters that are hard to understand and that people misunderstand and twist. And he he says, they do that with the rest of the scriptures too. So he includes Paul's writings in the scriptures. And so... In Thessalonica, though, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they're not writing letters yet until they get to 1 Thessalonians. They're sharing the good news verbally, the message about Jesus in person, through conversation, through preaching, through proclamation, through teaching. And he says this, you recognize Thessalonians was the word of God. And what does he say about the word of God? The word of God works. He says it's effective The author of Hebrews says, for the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so, yes, that means the scriptures, and we are are primarily people of the scriptures because uh, the 66 books of our canon have been assembled for us for many, many generations but it also applies to the simple proclamation of the gospel. The word of God goes out in power, in preaching, in sharing your faith. Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when we think about people receiving the gospel, we have to remember that the thing that changes people is God's word. It's not eloquent preaching. It's not funny anecdotes. It's not great slides. It's God's word. And in our generation today, I think there's been kind of a pendulum swing here. I grew up kind of in a context where, and maybe this isn't everyone's story, but I just felt like the answer to every problem was read your Bible more, right? And maybe maybe you feel that. Uh, And Sometimes, honestly, that kind of missed the mark. Uh, There was no room in that paradigm for a helpful counselor or um, therapy or medication or um, many other things that are helpful in working through the problems of this life. You know what you need to do? You just need to read your Bible more. If you're struggling with sin, if you're suffering with an illness of some kind, you just need to read your Bible more. And that misses it a little bit. But because of that recognition that that's maybe not quite how we should understand the world, the pendulum, as it usually does in the church, swings all the way to this other side where we just kind of say, you know what? The Bible's not really good for anything. And that's really unfortunate too. Because the Bible is the power of God for salvation. And so as we hopefully are people that can kind of live in the middle of that pendulum and recognize that there are 
multiple things that, that nature and science and human culture, and these are, these are called gifts of common grace that God has given to us that are very effective for certain problems that we struggle with, that there is a primacy to God's word. There is an authority to God's word and a sufficiency of God's word that is better than and greater than all those other things. And we should be relying on God's word because it is the power of God. And so a reminder for us, for those of us that are Christians this morning, are we people that spend time in God's word? Do we study it systematically? Do we, do we read it? Do we memorize it? Do we let it soak into our hearts? Jerry Shogren says the gospel is not a series of philosophical chats, but a message through which the king himself changes lives. And we would be wise to believe that and to make use of God's word. We can trust that God himself will make sure that his word is effective. In Isaiah 55, we read, For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. So what does God's word do? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. God's word is counsel and direction. When you are in need of wisdom, what, what, what side of this fork in the road should I take? What career should I pursue? How should I make this financial decision? Do you go to the word of God or do you go to other things? And again, not that other things aren't useful and helpful sometimes, but do you just forget that, oh yeah, the Bible might say something wise about my situation? Matthew 24, Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's word is eternal. Its value endures forever. There are all kinds of self-help routines and podcasters and uh, sources of wisdom that might be fine, but God's word is gonna be around forever. In James, he writes, therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God's word takes the place, supplants sin. Are you struggling with sin that you just can't seem to shake? One of the ways that God has provided for you to deal with that is to spend time in the scriptures, soaking in God's word, gaining strength from his power. John Calvin wrote, the whole of scripture therefore demonstrates how God by his word offers and bestows upon us every good thing. And God's word is, is humble and, and it's, it's gradual in the way it affects us. It's, it's like making healthy food choices, right? Like I had a salad for lunch yesterday but then I had a burrito for dinner. So it, I mean, I think we kind of balanced ourselves out there. So if you, if you want to make healthy choices, you have to make them consistently, right? You have to go on a, a plan and have a lifestyle of effective choices. And we need to be people that are consistently soaking ourselves in God's word. We can't, be, we can't have this understanding that like, oh yeah, I read my Bible this morning, so it's going to be a good day. Or conversely, like I forgot to read my Bible this morning and I got a traffic ticket. Like that's not how that works. We aren't uh, we don't believe in magic in that sense. This is not how that works. It's, it's about becoming people who are saturated with God's word. The gospel has the power to take you from death to life in an instant, and then it settles in to take you on a lifetime of transformation. I love how Eugene Peterson talks about the Christian life. This is a uh, him talking about the Bible, he says, the Bible provides the revelation of a world that has primarily to do with God. It is a huge world, far larger than what we inhabit on our own. We live in sin-cramped conditions, mostly conscious of ourselves, our feelings and frustrations, our desires and ideas, our achievements and discoveries, our failures and hurts. The Bible is deep and wide with God's love and grace, brimming over with surprises of mercy and mystery, peppered with alarming exposés of sin and bulletins of judgment. This is an immense world, and it takes time to adjust to the majesty. We're not used to anything on this scale. 
We have to be careful, though, that we don't swing the pendulum to the other side and, and say that the scriptures are the only tool that God has given us. We just saw last Sunday how Paul said that he didn't just share the gospel with the Thessalonians, he shared his whole life with them. But if we are people that fail to make the scriptures a priority in our lives, we will see a lack of fruit. And so Paul says, you receive the gospel by believing God's word. But he also says, you receive the gospel by suffering. Look at verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, since you have also suffered the same things from people of your own country, just as they did from the Jews. Paul points out that the Thessalonians are suffering at the hands of their own people, just like the churches in Judea are suffering at the hands of their own people. John Stott says the imitation of them by the Thessalonians was an unwitting rather than a deliberate one. All true churches which belong to God and live in Christ are bound on that account in spite of cultural difference to display a certain similarity to one another. They believe the gospel. They, they were formed into a church of Jesus Christ and they just became people that were like the other Christians. They didn't try to, they didn't plan on it. It just is what happened. Why did that happen? When, when men and women receive the gospel, the enemies of God arm themselves for battle and seek to destroy those people. This is the reality of following Christ. And this isn't, this isn't typical for like a gospel presentation, but if you're not a Christian here this morning, the call to follow Jesus is a call to enter a war, to become a combatant in a spiritual fight. And Paul, Paul sees this suffering that the Thessalonians are experiencing and he recognizes it as persecution. And sometimes this is hard for us in, in this country that we don't really see ourselves suffering in that same way. And you could ask the question, is the church in America, are we persecuted? And I would say largely no. Right? There, are, there are incidents that happen, but overall, churches in America still have a pretty highly favored position in the culture. It's, it's declining, I think, and I, I, my guess is it's going to continue to decline in case, unless there's some amazing revival that the Spirit of God does. But right now, we're pretty safe. We can gather when we want. We can own property. We're taxed. The government allows us to not pay taxes. I mean, that's a big perk. It's usually advantageous for those running for political office to declare a Christian faith, right? Like it's a, it's a uh, benefit. And so all in all, we live in a pretty safe place. And so sometimes we can feel like, man, I don't, I don't really understand this persecution thing. Especially when Paul says something like this in 2 Timothy, in fact, all who want to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Peter piles on some more in 1 Peter. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. And again, for some of us who live pretty comfortable lives in America, we may think like, man, I don't, I don't really feel persecuted. And, and does that mean I'm not a Christian? How are we supposed to understand this consequence of receiving the gospel? What, in what way should we expect to suffer as a Christian? And I think Augustine helps us out tremendously here, or sorry, not Augustus, Augustine, similar, very different. Augustine says, for many men are brave when they are enduring persecution from men and see them openly rage against themselves, imagining that they are imitating the sufferings of Christ in case men openly persecute them. But if assailed by the hidden attack of the devil, they believe they are not being crowned by Christ. Never fear when you imitate Christ, for when the devil tempted our Lord, there was no man in the wilderness. He tempted him secretly, but he was conquered and conquered too when openly attacking him. What Augustine is saying there is that when we become followers of Jesus, when we say yes 
to the allegiance to Christ, we become combatants in a spiritual war. And sometimes what that looks like is other human beings who are on the other side of that spiritual war attacking us, which is what is happening to the Thessalonians. But sometimes the devil uses other means to bring suffering in the lives of God's people. Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness, is not, does not in, encounter suffering at the hands of people there. He encounters sufferings at the hands of spiritual powers. And so even if we are not people that are being persecuted by mobs of pagans who are trying to kill us for our faith, the fact is because of our allegiance to Jesus, the devil hates us and wants to destroy us and brings things against us that cause us to suffer. Peter in 1 Peter 5 says, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. And we need to be careful not to ascribe every single negative thing about our lives to the devil. Satan isn't, you know, making your milk spoil, probably. But if as you press into Jesus, as you give yourself more and more to Christ and his purposes and his mission, if you find your life getting harder, if you find more and more suffering down that path, it's worth considering that the proof of our impact against this kingdom of darkness is that the powers of darkness retaliate against us. And Jesus makes us clear that the gates of hell will not stand before his church. Jesus wins this battle and Jesus' people are victorious in him, but the battle still rages. And while I would hope that the United States of America continues to be a place where the free exercise of religion is a thing. That may not always be the case, but even in our current context, we are people that suffer at the hands of the enemy because the enemy wants to destroy us. The enemy wants to push us away from the mission of Christ. And if that means physical suffering or relational suffering or financial suffering, he will use whatever he can to get your eyes off of Jesus and away from the battle that we're involved in. So Paul thanks God that the Thessalonians both accepted his words as the word of God and he recognizes that their suffering for the sake of Christ is an indicator that they have been adopted into God's family. But then there's this other group of people who have rejected the gospel. Verse 15, the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and persecuted us, they displeased God and are hostile to everyone by keeping us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit and wrath has overtaken them at last. So this is a really uncomfortable passage. On this side of the Holocaust, we've been taught to be very wary of speaking against Jewish people. And that's good. Before we take a look at what Paul is saying here, I want to briefly talk about what he's not saying. He's, he's not being anti-Semitic. And I would say, furthermore, it is unchristian to be anti-Semitic. Unfortunately, throughout the centuries, theologians like John Chrysostom and Martin Luther have written terrible things about Jewish people. They saw the Jewish nation as a people that had overwhelmingly rejected Christ and were standing in the way of the gospel. And they wrote really, really awful things that I'm not going to quote this morning. But the fact is, is their words were some of the things that were used by regimes like the Nazis to argue that Jewish people were subhuman and to justify horrific evil. Just unimaginable wickedness has been done to the Jewish people and those who would do that evil have unfortunately found support in aspects of the Christian church throughout the centuries. And that is terrible and wicked. 
Alternatively, maybe you have, depending on the, the, the neighborhood of the internet you live in, you may have run across the idea that Jewish people are secretly running the world. Anybody have run across that? The, the Rothschild family or more uh, up-to-date George Soros, the protocols of the elders of Zion. If you don't know what any of those things are, count yourself blessed. But this comes up from time to time that like there's this secret cabal of Jewish people that are like pulling the strings of the world's economy and, and they're greedy and terrible and awful. This is just terrible, terrible stuff. But it, it's, it sputters up. A couple of years ago, one of our political figures wondered out loud whether the wildfires in California were being caused by a, the Jewish cabal and space lasers being shot at the, the grasslands. Recently, Kanye West has come under fire for some really terrible things that he's said because he's been dabbling in those parts of the internet. And again, this is all wickedness and terrible and needs to be rejected. This is not what Paul is talking about. What does Paul think about Jewish people? Real quick, the first, three, uh, the first verses of Romans 9, 10, and 11 are, are really helpful here. Romans 9 says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that my, I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them by physical descent came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. It seems pretty clear here that Paul, a Jewish man, is volunteering to cut himself off from Jesus if it would save the rest of his people. Now, that's not possible. It's not how salvation works. But this is not a man that hates Jewish people. Next chapter, chapter 10 of Romans. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. Paul's praying for his ethnic family, but he recognizes, just like today, most Jewish people have rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one that the Hebrew scripture says is coming into the world. He, he came to them and they did not receive him. Romans 11, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Jumping down to verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, that you will not be conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul fully expects the people of Israel who are still God's special people to receive the promises that he gave them through Christ. And he says, God has got this plan to where he is hardening the people of Israel so that he can bring this multitude of Gentiles in, and then he's going to reconnect the people of Israel. And, and some of that is, all of that is beyond the scope of today's message. But we see Paul continuing in his missionary work to preach the gospel first to the Jewish people in the synagogue and then to the Gentiles. He sees the people of Israel as having priority in the proclamation of the gospel. So what is he saying here? What is going on in these verses? I think the first thing that's helpful is that in most of our Bibles, the word translated Jews is not incorrect, but it's actually Judeans. And in this text, Paul is making a comparison of how the Thessalonians are experiencing suffering at the hand of their own people, just like the churches in Jerusalem, in Judea, were experiencing suffering at the hands of their own people. So he's, he's not making a blanket statement about all Jewish people everywhere. He's speaking specifically to the Judeans in the land of Judea around Jerusalem who have persecuted the Jerusalem church. But he does have some hard things to say about those specific people, doesn't he? He says they're responsible for the death of Christ and the persecution of the early Christians. So as we think about what rejecting the gospel looks like, we see that it brings hostility. Paul says that they are hostile. They killed Jesus and the prophets and they displease God. 
The reality is to be presented with the offer of salvation by King Jesus and to refuse it is to become God's enemy. And it's, it's worse than that, though. All of us, all of humanity, because of our sin, we have all turned our back on God. We are all, whether we realize it or not, making ourselves his enemies. Romans 5, Paul says, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more then, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? We were all enemies of God, living lives apart from him in opposition to him before the gospel saved us. And yet here and in other places, Paul recognizes that the one who hears the good news of the gospel and then refuses it is in a different category. In Philippians 3, he says, for I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question that this brings up for me is that, like, I don't know. I know a lot of people who don't follow Jesus that are pretty great. Has that been your experience? Like, there's really kind people that are not Christians. They don't seem hostile to God. They just don't seem to care about God. And this is really important because we can get off track really fast if we envision everyone who is not a Christian as being some kind of crooked, evil, miserable person because that's just not true. We all have friends, neighbors, coworkers that are just, many of them maybe nicer than we are, more ethically, morally upstanding than we are. But Paul says in, in this Philippians text, he says that they are focused on earthly things. Their lives are ultimately going a direction that is against the kingdom of God. The man or woman that rejects Jesus is choosing to work for the kingdom of Satan. 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. Then they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is a description of our non-Christian friends and family. Maybe, maybe if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this is a description of you. You have been trapped by the devil. I think about the movie, The Matrix. Uh, in, in The Matrix, when Morpheus first shows Neo The Matrix, it's, it's filled with all of these people. And they're good people. And Morpheus says, these are the people we're trying to save. These are the people that our, our mission is to pull them out of this construct and, and save them from the machines. But the reality is the agents can take over any one of those people at any time and all of a sudden they become your enemy. Those that don't know Christ are being held captive by the devil. And what's worse than that is ultimately those individuals who are not Christians, they know the truth. Romans 1 says that we all know the truth deep down, that something about our life experience, something about the world around us, something about the conscience that God has implanted in our souls tells us that God is there, that God is real, and that if, if that's the case, he, we should be in submission to him. And Paul says in Romans that we suppress that truth. We push it down so that we don't have to deal with it. And this is the state that the world is in. But Paul says in this case, and maybe you know people like this, their unbelief turned into active hostility towards Christ and his church. They killed Jesus and they killed the first Christians and they persecuted them. The irony is that Paul was among the persecutors, wasn't he? He was one of the the head persecutors at the beginning of this movement that wanted to see the church destroyed. And Jesus radically saved him and, and made him maybe the world's greatest missionary. And he says this hostility isn't just about not liking Christians. It's about actively preventing others from becoming Christians. 
actively preventing the gospel from going forward. I, I have a friend who uh, was recently um, let go from his job because someone else heard him talking about his faith to another staff member. And they complained. And there was nothing that they could do to get him fired. So they just made up a bunch of things, made up a bunch of false things about who he was and what he was like that were actual ethic violations. And they got a bunch of people together to affirm that, yeah, like this guy's a bad guy. And they got him fired because that person didn't want him talking about Jesus to other people. That's a, that's a depth of hatred for Christ that is pretty heavy. It's not a live and let live kind of, you believe your thing, I believe my thing. It's no, you shouldn't be allowed to say that stuff to that other person and I don't want you around here. Uh, and part of our culture, there is this idea that has become popular over the last, I don't know, eight or 10 years that, that ideas do violence. You've probably run into this that happens in, in college contexts a lot, that, that people should be protected from things that make them uncomfortable. And this happens around a lot of issues, not just our faith left and right on the political spectrum, but we see it a lot often, more and more often, with regard to the gospel. You can't come to our campus and say those things because they're dangerous. We don't want people to hear those things because it will hurt them. It's violent to tell someone that they are a sinner. It's violent to tell someone that Jesus is the only way to be saved. That's a kind of hatred for the truth that is really warped and wicked. Rejection of the gospel brings hostility, but it also brings judgment. Look at verse 16. As a result, they are constantly filling up their sins to the limit, and wrath has overtaken them at last. There is a sense throughout the scriptures of, of filling up sin in a cup, and, and, this, and this sin and this wickedness will, will be turned around and poured back out one day as the wrath of God. And in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, in the fourth generation, they will return here, Abraham's children, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The people in this land are wicked, but they're not so wicked that they have no hope. And I will continue to plead with them, but the day will be coming when they have become as wicked as I'm going to let them be. Daniel says something similar as he prophesies about the Persians and the Greeks near the end of their kingdoms when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin. A ruthless king skilled in intrigue will come to the throne. There's a, there's a line in that cup for every culture, for every person. Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees who are appealing to their long pedigree of uh, is Israelite faith. And Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. And so Paul is, is riffing on this idea that, that there is some sense in which the amount of wickedness that God is going to allow is fixed. And when that fixed amount is reached, judgment will occur. But we're not really clear what Paul is saying Scholarship is kind of divided here. It could be that Paul is thinking about the last decade. He's writing in about 50 AD, and for the last 10 years, between 40 or 50, some rough stuff has happened to the Jewish people. A few years back, Caligula, the emperor, set up a statue of himself in the temple. If you know anything about the way the temple works, that's a real big problem. A few years back from that, there was a, there was a major famine in Jerusalem. A lot of people suffered because of it. A couple of years later, there was a, a, a Passover feast. Every, every year at Passover, all of the people of the surrounding countryside would come into Jerusalem for the feast, and, and some, some things sparked into violence, and there was a Roman massacre of about 20,000 people on Passover. And so it could be that Paul is thinking about those things and saying, like, this is the consequence that is God has meted out against the people of Jerusalem for their evil. 
It could be that Paul is speaking prophetically and he's looking forward to 70 AD and in about uh, 20 years from the writing of this letter, the the Roman uh, empire would have enough of Jewish rebellion and they would send their legions in to destroy Jerusalem and tear down the temple and radically change the Jewish faith for the forever until today. No place to worship at the temple. They had to, it was a, it was a major turning point in who they were as a people. And it could be that Paul is seeing that as a prophet and, and saying, this is coming on them. Or as it, in my Bible, it's the last words of verse 16 say, uh, the, the wrath has overtaken them at last. You could also translate that at last to, to the end. And maybe Paul is thinking of final judgment. Maybe he's thinking of people that constantly refuse to repent and turn to Jesus. And someday God will ultimately bring judgment on his enemies. Regardless of the specifics, what Paul is saying is he is assuring the Thessalonian believers that the enemies of God will be judged. And this is, judgment is not a popular topic today. We don't, we don't like judgment. But it is an important one. Because the reality is, is that if God does not judge sin, every wicked thing that's ever happened in this world is just fine with him. We think about the Holocaust We think about the Nigerian church right now. We think about the civil war in Sudan. We think about school shootings in this country. On and on and on and on. If we wanted to sit here, we could think of terrible things all day long. And if there is no judgment for sin, then God just doesn't care. And I just don't think that's right. I think we have a God who does care. I think we have a God who is just. I think the scriptures bear that out. And while we might not like the idea of judgment because it feels icky in our postmodern 21st century world, we need it. And the reality for us today is if, if you are not in Christ, whether you're actively hostile to him or not, you are on the road to judgment and destruction Hell is a place that God created for his enemies. And it's not God's intention that you be his enemy. You are not made for that. But at some point in time that you and I don't know, the judgment that you are storing up in your rebellion against Jesus will be full and it will be brought to bear on your life in God's wrath. Because the truth is, one day when Jesus returns to bring his kingdom fully to bear, there is not going to be any wickedness in it. And Christian, and I would, I would, I would wager that most of us in this room are Christians this morning. Thankfully, it's not our job to execute God's justice. It's God's job. But it is our job to warn people. We need to love people enough that we're willing to tell them the truth. And sometimes that means warnings of judgment. So the question for us this morning as we think about receiving the gospel and rejecting the gospel is which, which one are we? Which one are you? And maybe, I, you, maybe you're, you've never considered the claims of Jesus that he is God in a human body and that he came to earth to live a perfect life that you and I are incapable of living and to die on the cross to take away our sin, the penalty for the debt that we owe to God. And he rose from the dead to offer us new life in his kingdom forever. And maybe that's something that sounds so weird to you. You're so far from that. But that's on offer for you today to bow your knee to Jesus and submit to him as your Lord to receive life from him. But maybe you're someone that's just been like a church person for a long time. Maybe you've grown up in the church. Maybe you've heard this before, but you've never really taken it seriously. Your life offers no evidence of of, of transformation by the power of the gospel. Maybe you need to receive Christ this morning. Or maybe you're like the Thessalonians, that you've received the good news of Jesus. You have turned from idols and pledged allegiance to Christ. And you have the opportunity 
and the calling to share that love with everyone you know, to share that grace with everyone you know. See, there's only really two categories. And I want to throw out an illustration that, that may, not, may not hit you, and I'm willing to, to live with that. I vetted it with a couple of my friends, and they said it was good, so we'll see what happens. It has become my observation that meat smells a certain way. Barbecued meat, stewed meat, grilled meat. There's, there's like a, a set of chemicals, right? And in the Venn diagram of that set of chemicals, there's a little bit of overlap of another circle. And that other circle is the bathroom. And I know you're laughing because it's true. But here's the thing. If you smell that set of chemicals in the bathroom, it's a very different experience than if you smell it at the barbecue. Paul, at the beginning of my message today, I read a text that said that we are the aroma of Christ. And I wonder for some of us today, or maybe friends and family that you have, you've experienced the aroma of Christ in a context that made it distasteful. Maybe you experienced the gospel preached in a church that was known in the community for the way it spoke badly of others, and you rejected it because of that. Maybe the word of God was shared by someone that you knew was living a hypocritical double life. And I understand, it makes sense to me why, why the aroma of Christ would smell like death in that context. But if you're not a Christian this morning, today is another opportunity to respond to or reject the gospel. And it's my prayer that the good news that Jesus offers you life smells good to you this morning. It's, part, it's my prayer that the reality that Jesus loves you and died for you and wants you to be part of his everlasting kingdom, that that is compelling to you this morning. And that if you haven't, that you would choose to trust in Christ today. Let's do some Q&R. Can you define what persecution means and what counts as being persecuted? I don't know if I can. But the New Testament connects persecution with suffering for the sake of Jesus. That, that verse that I talked about earlier, um, Peter is saying, like, if you suffer as a murderer, as a meddler, you know, like, if you, if you do stupid things and bad things happen to you, like, that's not persecution. That's you doing stupid things. But as you suffer because you're a Christian, that's persecution. And that definitely happens when people are antagonistic against you for your faith. Um, not antagonistic against you because you're a jerk, but because you're a Christian. And I think uh, I shared that, uh, that line from Augustine because I think it's helpful to kind of broaden the scope around persecution to say, like, we aren't just persecuted. We, aren't, we don't just suffer for being Christians because, from other people. We suffer primarily for being Christians by the dark powers of the devil. And we can look at Jesus, we can look at Job, we can look at the life of Peter and many, many examples of painful suffering that happens due to spiritual powers because those individuals were intent on following Christ. And again, like I said earlier, I don't think we can say everything that happens to us negatively is the devil, but it's worth thinking about if you've dedicated your life to Christ and you are moving the ball forward for the kingdom of God, if you're sharing your faith, if you're making choices that, are, that result in humility and grace and self-denial and seeking the good of others over your own, if, if that's the trajectory that you're on because you follow Jesus and you're suffering for it, it might be because 
You're suffering as a Christian and the powers of darkness don't want you to succeed. It's a good question. We're going to take communion. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, Jesus talks about this cup. He talks about the cup that, that God has given him. And he says, I don't want to drink it because it's the cup of God's wrath. It's, it's all of the sins of the world piled up to the brim. And from some perspective that we can't completely understand as the divine son and the, and the human nature of Christ interact, the cross at some level was something that in that moment he didn't want to do. It said that he sweat drops of blood because he was so anxious about it. He chose to be obedient to the Father and carry out the work of saving us from sin and death and hell by taking sin and death, the wrath of God on himself on the cross. And as we come up here this morning and take the bread and the cup, we acknowledge our part in that. We remember that we are the reason that Jesus went to the cross, that it's our sin that puts him there. And that by participation with Christ, by being in Christ as followers of Jesus, as Christians, we have been crucified with him and raised to new life. And so in a moment, the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing. I would invite you to come up and take the bread and the cup. There's wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience. Back to your seat. Just reflect on those questions. Have you received the gospel or are you rejecting the gospel? And if, if there's a sense that like, yeah, I'm not really sure I have received the gospel, you can do that today. You can decide to follow Jesus. And if you have questions about that, come and talk to me, come and talk to Brian. We would love to walk you through what that looks like. And as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, we are going to um, re-pledge our allegiance to Christ through the recitation of the Nicene Creed. And, and if you're new with us, the, the Nicene Creed is, is a uh, statement of faith that was put together about 1,700 years ago. And it's a statement of faith that all Christians around the world can agree on. We, we fight about a lot of things, but these are things that we are sure of as followers of Jesus. And we recite it together. We've been in the practice of reciting it together to remind ourselves of what it means to be a Christian. So we'll recite the Nicene Creed together and we'll remember Jesus' death and our new life in him through the communion table. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship. Um, prayer rugs are available if you want to come and kneel. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. But I'd invite you to stand right now as we recite the creed together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.